Hi, everyone. My name is Stephanie Smith, host of the Connection Place podcast, where we connect our heart's passion for God with our mind's understanding of Scripture, where we come together in the place where Christ longs to connect with us, His Word. Thank you for joining me again for this next installment in the Luke 5020 plan for 2024. Before we get started, I did just want to take a second to note that yes, I do realize that when you factor in the first four episodes we did in December of 2023, the episodes that cover the first two chapters of Luke, this is technically a 54 episode plan and not a 50 episode plan. But for the sake of keeping it simple, and also because the name flows better, we'll just agree to stick with the 50-20 plan. Sound good? Cool. Okay, now down to business. We're here with the next episode of The Connection Place, and today we're diving into the back half of the third chapter of Luke. Today's episode is all about genealogy. And while you might think this means we're going to have a shorter episode because, let's be honest, how much is there to say about genealogy? Well, you would be wrong. In fact, I'm pretty sure this episode might be one of the longer ones because there's just so much to say on this subject that I couldn't help myself. So forgive me, it's the Bible nerd in me and I just love this stuff so much. I can't wait to share these thoughts and what I've learned with you guys. If you've been reading scripture for any amount of time, you know that there were some pretty wild names back in the day. And you probably also know that lineage matters. We've covered this a little bit in previous podcasts, the importance of lineage to the culture of Luke's time. Honestly, lineage still matters to many cultures and families today. We haven't lost that dynamic even in our modern-day society. So it makes sense that, given the context for the world at the time the Bible was written, and from the perspective of historicity, that the genealogy of Jesus would really matter. It matters for the people at the time to have a record of it, and it matters for us today. But why does it matter so much? Well, apart from establishing a traceable, historical record through time, it also helps us trace the hand of God throughout the ages to this prophesied, predestined moment of our Savior's arrival and life on the earth. And the simple fact is, names in and of themselves matter to us too. We know this very well in our modern society. We've talked also in earlier episodes about the fact that families throughout generations often use names to forge lineage and legacy. Not only that, but what is one of the most important aspects of welcoming a new baby into the world, but giving it a name? (laughs) Names not only identify us, but they also impart meaning and destiny onto our lives. In just a name, parents can communicate so much about their desires, hopes, and intentions over their children. I'll give you an example. When it came to naming my son Silas, we were having a hard time finding just the right name. We wanted a strong name, nothing too complicated, and something unique, especially because our last name is Smith, which obviously is very common. We also wanted something with significance. I remember the moment I stumbled upon a random article of biblical baby names and there it was. Silas. It jumped off the page to me. I read it out to my husband, and in that instant, we both knew this is the name. Silas happens to be one of Paul's missionaries, who is most well-known for the jailbreak scene in Acts. In the middle of the night, Paul and Silas are worshiping in prison, when all of a sudden a great earthquake shakes the prison doors wide open. And not only them, but for all the other prisoners too. As if that's not enough, 
one of the prison guards ends up committing himself and his whole household to Jesus as a result. Just because Paul and Silas worshipped in the midst of their suffering and captivity. Talk about a testimony. But I digress. What really drew us to the name Silas, apart from appreciating the story of the biblical Silas, was the meaning of the name. The name Silas means asked for. For myself personally, at that point in my life, it had been a long road to pregnancy. I had wanted children since my 20s, but due to divorce and health issues, I wasn't able to safely conceive until I was 33. After about a decade of waiting, finally, here I was with a healthy baby boy on the way. So I loved that this name, Silas, would always communicate to my child, myself, and to God that we asked for and wanted this baby. It would always serve as a reminder of the miracle and the promise-keeping nature of God. Alan and I fully believe that God is the one who sent us this name of Silas, because not only did it fit to a T the exact criteria we were looking for, but it also had another meaning that we didn't realize until later on. If you're a Justin Timberlake fan, you might have figured it out sooner than we did, because Justin Timberlake also has a son named Silas. Justin Timberlake and his wife Jessica Beale knew something we didn't know, that Silas also means man of the woods. In fact, Justin designed a whole tour and album around that very theme in honor of his son. Putting aside the fact that people as famous as Justin and Jessica also chose the name Silas, I couldn't believe how prophetic this particular meaning of our Silas's name would be. From birth, Silas has loved being outside, and in particular, he has loved parks and camping. He also absolutely loves animals. So not only is he asked for, He really is a little man of the woods. So yeah, names matter to us, and names matter to God. We see it all throughout history and culture, and we certainly see that reflected in scripture. Think about it. The very first specifically recorded task that God gives to Adam in the garden, before Eve arrives on the scene, is to name all the animals. I mean, that's a pretty cool job. In Isaiah 40, we're told that God brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. He names the stars. Even Jesus goes so far as to rename Simon, one of his disciples, in the moment he meets him. John chapter 1 tells us, When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Why did Jesus rename Simon to Peter? Peter means rock. And later in scripture, we discover Jesus' intention to have Peter be the leader of the early church, to literally be the rock on which Jesus' church is built. On and on, I could give examples of how God uses names to tell important parts of his story. In fact, not only does God tell his story through our names, he does that with his own names. God gives himself many different names and shares them with us all throughout scripture. He does this to describe himself to us in terms we can understand, to reveal aspects of his character to us that we can know without a doubt to be part of his eternal and unchanging nature. Understanding the names of God is a crucial way to connect and deepen our relationship with him. And I would argue that knowing the names of God greatly deepens our prayer life 
because we know exactly who we are praying to. So I would highly, highly encourage you to undertake a Names of God study at some point. There are a lot of ways to do this, but I can personally vouch for two year-long devotionals written by Anne Spangler that cover both the names of God and the names of Jesus in depth. I just love all the names of God and Jesus, and I could spend hours talking about this. I really could. But for the purpose of today, I'll stick to just a few of my favorites. El Roy, the God who sees me. The very first name that is given to God, as revealed to us in Scripture, is El Roy. What's really cool is who gives him this name. None other than Hagar, who is the Egyptian maidservant of Abraham's wife Sarah, and who becomes pregnant by Abraham because Sarah wants to fast-track God's promise, and she figures going through Hagar would be the only possible way for them to have a son in their old age, which, as we know, was not God's best plan for them. You can check out Genesis 16 for the whole story. Anyway, so Sarah becomes jealous of Hagar, even though it's Sarah's own fault that Hagar is pregnant, and basically she casts Hagar out. So here in Genesis 16, Hagar is pregnant, in distress, and on the run, and God meets her in the desert. Put a pin in that, again, God is present with us in our wilderness. He often meets us there. Anyway, he speaks to her in the desert, and he speaks over her situation. And while Hagar's child is not the promised son of Abraham and wasn't necessarily God's plan, God in his sovereignty still looks upon Hagar with compassion and makes a promise that she too will bear a nation through her son. And then he prophesies about her son. It is after speaking with God and hearing from God that Hagar names him. In verses 13 and 14, it says, So she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are El Roy. For she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. Let's take a note here that the very first recorded other name of God in Scripture is by a cast out woman of no value to the world, but of great value to God. Very on theme for God so far in what we've learned about him through Luke's account. And Hagar names him the God who sees me. I can attest through the many Hagar moments of my life, great and small, that El Roy is indeed a name and virtue of God that I cling to and that is super precious to me. Okay, the next name of God I want to highlight is actually sort of two names. I am and God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When God is charging Moses in Exodus chapter 3 with delivering the Israelite people from the harsh enslavement of the Egyptians, they have this conversation. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. I love this moment in scripture. It can come off as though God is kind of putting Moses in his place, And maybe there is a little bit of that, like 
No matter what, God is God, and we would do well as finite human creatures to never lose that awe, fear, wonder of the infinite and unknowable God. And yet, God is reminding Moses that God is God, but also that God is the God of his people. He says, I am who I am, which is something that can't fully and completely be described in human terms, no matter how many names and words we might try to use. But he also wants Moses and the Israelites to know that he is their God, the only God, the great God, and he is on their side. He does this by calling to mind their ancestry and lineage. Again, a plug for why lineage and genealogy matters. He says, tell them I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, I'm the God that you know already because you are deeply familiar with these people and their promises. You know me through the stories that have been told and passed down from generation to generation. I'm that God and I'm coming to rescue you. And he even says, this is my name forever. He wants every generation to remember him this way by the names of these people and this lineage forever. He's signifying that he is the God they can trust all the way into eternity, that he will never change his mind about them, and he will never leave them. There are so many other great names of God. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord is my healer. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. Yahweh Shammah, the Lord is there. Yahweh Sitkanu, the Lord is my righteousness. Elohim, the creator. But let's switch gears a bit to Jesus. We're, as a culture, a bit more familiar with the names of Christ thanks to Christmas, but they're still worth discussing in detail here. Let's chat about Isaiah 9, which says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Four names that the people of that time were given in advance to know about Jesus, to prepare their hearts for Jesus, to understand about the mission and purpose of Jesus before Jesus even arrived on the scene. He would be wonderful, meaning both wonderful in the sense of pleasing, delightful, extremely good, and also full of wonder in his divinity and humanity mingling perfectly together. He would be counselor, here to help us and guide us and show us what's best for us. He would be mighty, all-powerful. He would be God, fully God, even as he is fully human. He would be eternal, forever. He would be Father. This part is interesting because we understand him as the Son of God. Indeed, that's mentioned in this very scripture. But he's also connected and at one with the Father, This is part of the mystery of our triune God, but God wanted them and us to understand that to know God the Son is to know God the Father. Jesus would be our prince, the heir to the throne, authorized to rule and reign. He would be our peace, that rule and reign would bring with it a gift of peace from our true enemy that no one and nothing else apart from Jesus could give us. Here's another name for Jesus. Lamb of God. The significance of this name can't be understated, especially to the people of God during the time of Jesus' life. 
If you read the Old Testament, you come away with the understanding that blood sacrifice for the atonement of sins is required by God in order to stay in right standing with God. Before Jesus, this was accomplished through animal sacrifice. And not just any animal sacrifice. It had to be perfect, without blemish, meeting exact criteria as laid out in the Torah. Jesus, in calling himself the Lamb of God, tells God's people during those days and us today that he himself became the perfect, spotless, blameless blood sacrifice needed to make us right with God. But unlike an actual lamb, who could only cover one person for a finite period of time, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross covers all people for all time. His perfect sacrifice perfectly takes away all of our sin. And that is why scripture tells us that Jesus himself is the only way to God the Father and to heaven. One more name of Christ that I can't leave off this list. Emmanuel, God with us. Another well-known name of Jesus thanks to the Christmas story, but I think if there's only one name that my brain could hold in my mind to remember about Jesus forever, it would be this one. He came to earth, left the perfection of heaven and all his power and glory contained therein, so that he could be with us, and not just be with us, but actually go through the whole human experience from start to finish. I mean, talk about mind blown. I never get over this, and I hope I never do. He made the choice to connect, relate, touch, see, feel, be with us in every way he could, even though he didn't have to. And maybe some don't see that as that big of a deal or that much of a sacrifice. I mean, after all, what's 33 human years on earth when you have a whole boundless amount of heaven the rest of the time? But I say it means everything because it changed everything for us. Those 33 years and the things he did in that time made it possible for us to have eternity with God. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit all in perfect unity and harmony agreed that heaven wouldn't be the same without us there. And so Jesus paid the human price so that he could be God with us, not just for 33 years on earth, but forever into eternity. All right, so now that we've covered so many reasons why names and genealogies and lineages matter, let's finally get into the text of today's episode. Picking back up for the remainder of Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 23, let's read together. As he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, son of Mattathias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Math, son of Mattathias, son of Saman, son of Josek, son of Jodah, son of Joannan, son of Resa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adi, son of Kosum, son of Elmadam, son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of Eliezer, son of Joram, son of Matat, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Malaya, son of Mena, son of Matata, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, 
son of Salmon, son of Nation, son of Aminadab, son of Ram, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Serug, son of Reu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Whew, Lord, that is a list. That was kind of tricky to read, actually. <laughs> Forgive any mispronunciations. But okay, so what's going on here? Quite simply, Luke is providing, through whatever investigation he's completed using the resources available to him, a historical accounting of the lineage of Jesus. And he's given us quite a lot of names, from Joseph all the way to Adam and God himself. One thing I notice off the bat, there are some repeat names in here. A few Josephs, a few Levi's, etc., etc. By contrast, there are quite a few distinctive names in here. Names I'm not familiar with at all, and indeed haven't heard in modern times. Not in American culture, at least. I know I can't say I've heard of anyone named Esli or Melchi or Mahalalel. Obviously, there isn't time to go through every single one of these names. But a very cool way to study genealogies that is worth taking the time to do is to look up the meaning of the names and see if those names show up in other places in scripture. You may be surprised by what you find. It's also a good idea to compare and contrast. It's here I'd like to note for the record that a lot of my fact-finding for this portion of today's podcast was done through the use of Logos Bible software, and a lot of that was culled from the genealogy of Jesus by Kyle G. Anderson from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. I also relied a good bit on the Holman's Illustrated Bible Dictionary. Both of these resources are excellent for deeper study. All right, so let's compare and contrast then. In Matthew chapter 1, we also have a genealogy of Jesus, and it's different. Matthew emphasizes Jesus as the royal son of Abraham and son of David. Meanwhile, Luke traces Jesus' descent all the way back to Adam and to God. As the offspring of Adam, Jesus is the brother of all humanity. As the offspring of God, Jesus has divine sonship. Matthew and Luke's genealogy both focus on Jesus, both identify Joseph and Mary as his earthly parents, both point to a miraculous virgin birth, and both mostly agree on the family lineage from Abraham to David. Beyond that, however, there are many differences. Luke begins his genealogy with Jesus and runs backwards. Matthew begins with Abraham and runs forward. Luke's list presents a direct paternal lineage. Matthew introduces explicative words and mentions wives and brothers. Luke's list is considerably longer. Not only does Luke carry the list beyond Abraham to Adam and then God, but the corresponding sections of Luke include more names. For example, from Abraham to Jesus, Luke includes 57 names, while Matthew only has 41. If a generation is roughly 25 to 30 years, the Lucan genealogy seems like it might be more complete. From David to Joseph, the only names on both lists that correspond with one another are Zerubbabel and his father Shealtiel. 
Historically, most commentators have been comfortable enough with the differences between the two lists, although there have been modern attempts to reconcile them. I encourage you to study these differences further if you are so inclined, but that's not the point of today's podcast. Having said that, I do want to dig just a little deeper into the fact that Matthew's account includes the names of women. Matthew gives five female names in his genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, who we know was sexually assaulted. Rahab, the prostitute spy who helped the Israelites take over Jericho. Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, who vowed to stay with Naomi after Ruth's husband died, even though Ruth was a foreigner. Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who was raped by King David and who eventually bore King Solomon as her son. And also Mary, the virgin mother of Jesus. I mean, come on. Five women. Women of varying ages, locations, backgrounds, most of whom were abused in some way. These five women were counted worthy by Matthew and therefore God to be included in the record of history as being part of Jesus the Savior's lineage. Their inclusion not only helps to connect prophetic dots in scripture about Jesus, but they remind us yet again that God sees and values women, that God sees and values outsiders, that God sees and values the oppressed. These women shouldn't have been part of God's family, and certainly not in any noteworthy way. But God makes very clear through Matthew that they are part of his family and they do matter. All right, so back to focusing on Luke's genealogy account. I'd like to draw your attention to a few specific and likely familiar names here, starting from the top of Luke's list and working our way down. Joseph. Obviously, this is Jesus' earthly father, and Luke includes him in Jesus' lineage intentionally. Even though Jesus wasn't biologically Joseph's son, Joseph still fathered him on the earth, and that for sure counts. Shout out to all the step-parents and foster parents and spiritual parents, am I right? I'm a stepmom myself, and so I'm grateful that one of the most important families in history, containing the most important child in history, understands what it's like to have a parent and child dynamic that isn't through blood. In fact, the name Joseph can mean God shall add. If that isn't the most beautiful picture of step and foster and adoptive parenting, because indeed God has added Joseph to Jesus's life, not because Jesus didn't already have a father, but because Joseph was important to the line, life, and story of Christ. All right, Zerubbabel. Here's a name you might not readily recognize, but he is named in Ezra chapter 2 among the leaders of those who returned from Babylonian exile. He goes on to help rebuild the altar and the temple that had been destroyed. He faces opposition in this task, but eventually, as governor, he breaks through the red tape of the time, gets the permission he needs, and gets the job done. Remember that for the Israelites during those days, the temple is where God would meet his people and where God's people could come and meet with him. This task of Zerubbabel's was highly significant and important to those people, and is also highly symbolic of the true temple that would be destroyed and rebuilt in three days' time, Jesus himself. For us today, we no longer need the temple to commune with God, because it is Jesus who dwells in us and gives us access to God directly. David Here's a name you likely know pretty well. 
arguably the most famous king in scripture apart from Jesus himself. The name David can mean favorite or beloved, which is fitting for this king chosen directly by God and who God himself says is a man after God's own heart. David was by no means perfect, and he lived a life full of trials. But in scripture, we see through David a pretty compelling argument for living a life close and connected with God. David, in fact, is one who gives us one of the greatest examples and cases for repentance through his writing of Psalm 51, a psalm of contrition between David and God after David sinned through committing adultery, which was also actually rape, and murder. Quite the egregious list of sins, and yet David understood that seeking God's forgiveness was not only important, but possible. David experienced the high favor of God as well, and indeed, God promises David in 2 Samuel 7, which just happens to be one of my most personal favorites in scripture, that he will establish David's kingdom and lineage forever. This promise is well and fully kept through Jesus Christ, David's direct descendant. Jesse. This is David's father, and he's most known for having several other sons, all of whom Jesse thought would be better suited to be king than David. But God had other plans. As the story tells us, God saw past appearances straight through to the heart, and so chose David instead of his more manly brothers. God does the same thing for us today. Boaz. Grandfather of Jesse, great-grandfather of David, This guy is the hero, more or less, of Ruth's story. Remember I mentioned above how Ruth's husband died, making her a young widow. She opted to stay with her mother-in-law Naomi instead of returning to her own people, who were the Moabites. And here is where we see God's hand at work in the life of Ruth for the big picture purpose of God's story and plan. Ruth, as a foreigner, is allowed to glean grain in fields. Gleaning grain just means taking the leftovers, essentially. Leftovers, as it happens, which God commanded his people to leave in their fields for just such an occasion and just such a person as Ruth. And so Ruth gleans in Boaz's field and he, being a wealthy relative of Naomi's husband, takes notice of Ruth. You can read the whole story yourself in the book of Ruth, but basically Boaz comes through for Ruth in a really cool way and ends up marrying her taking this foreign widow and making her into someone who would forever be known in history through the line of Jesus. Judah. One of Jesus's other names, to contrast with the name Lamb of God, is Lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and thus he is the beginning point of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. You can read all about this in Genesis. In Genesis 49, Jacob, the father of the twelve tribes and therefore the father of Judah, actually prophesies over Judah that Jesus will come from his line. It specifically says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until it comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. That's talking about Jesus. Also relevant, the name Judah means praise Yahweh fitting that Jesus would come from the tribe of praise. Jacob. Jacob's story has a lot to it, so for the sake of time, I'll ask you to check him out in Genesis. In fact, his story takes up roughly half the whole book. But here are some highlights. Jacob as a name has a few different meanings to include he grasps the heel 
or deceiver and cheat, which Jacob throughout much of his life is a deceiver and a cheat, and also deals with being deceived and cheated, which is yet another confirmation that God will work through whoever he wills and not necessarily who is the gold star candidate. Since we're talking about names here, one thing to note is that in Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with God, literally wrestles with him, and comes away injured but still alive to tell the tale. Jacob came away from wrestling, insisting on a blessing, and God granted it to him, and in the process, renamed him. He said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. Jacob continues to be called by both names throughout scripture, but it's still important to note because otherwise it might be confusing. Jacob and Israel are one and the same meaning the 12 tribes of Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel are also the same thing. Isaac. Isaac, of course, is the promised son of Abraham, who is the father of Israel and the Israelites. I won't go into detail about Isaac's story here, except I do want to note this about his name. It means laughter. This name reflects the laughter of Sarah, as she eavesdropped on the conversation between Abraham and God where God promised that in a year's time they would have a son. Check out Genesis 18 for the story. Sarah's laughter was disbelieving, and God questioned her as to why she didn't believe him. Sarah denied it, but of course God knew what was up. I kind of love the duality of meaning in Isaac's name here. I think it shows that God himself has a sense of humor, that we don't need to take everything so seriously. But also, it shows that God would indeed bring laughter and joy into the lives of Sarah and Abraham through the fulfillment of his promise to them. Abraham Again, I won't go too deep into Abraham's story here, but the circumstances surrounding the name of Abraham are very interesting. Did you know that Abraham's name actually started as Abram and that Sarah's name actually began as Sarai? But then, in Genesis 17, God changes both of their names, Sarai to Sarah and Abram to Abraham. Why did he do this? The name Abram means father is exalted, and Sarai means princess. Both great names. But God changed them to mean the father of nations and the mother of nations, respectively, to reflect their full, God-given, God-breathed destiny. To reflect the covenant relationship he was beginning with them, God gave them new names directly as their father. Adam. Adam, as we know, is the very first human being that ever existed, created directly by God by breathing on the dust of the earth. Adam, quite simply and appropriately, means man. Eve, interestingly, means living. Luke includes Adam in the lineage of God to remind us that Jesus is indeed the brother of all humankind. And fun fact, one of Jesus' favorite ways to refer to himself was by calling himself the Son of Man, another name to reinforce his connection to and relationship with all of humanity. God Last of all, Luke includes God and Jesus' lineage. Of course, God is the direct father of Jesus, and Luke wants us to know that Jesus is therefore the Son of God. This seems obvious, but it's important we get this, that Jesus is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. Those compelling claims during Jesus' lifetime on earth and ever since 
has caused people to question and dispute him. Nonetheless, Luke knows and wants us to know that Jesus is indeed both, and no other being has ever or will ever be able to say the same. One thing I want to mention is that while we as humans endeavor to give and have names that impart deep meaning and significance, sometimes we get this wrong. I mean, if you think of the English language, how ironic and imprecise can our language be? Our spellings and the way we structure and use our words can seem kind of ridiculous at times. So it can be with names. I was watching some sort of nature special the other day, and it mentioned how a muskrat is not actually a rat. Well, why did we name it a muskrat then? You know what I'm saying? Why couldn't we have called it what it is? Because isn't it confusing otherwise? I'm sure you can think of some more examples along these lines. But while humans may be imprecise, God never is. As we've seen, scratch that. As we've seen many times now, he is extremely intentional with names, with lineages, with genealogies, with every word he speaks. Even when we take matters into our own hands, God can intervene for the fulfillment of his promises. Going back to the story of Hagar, the son Hagar bore by Abraham as a result of Sarah's ill-conceived plan was ultimately named by God, not Hagar. The name God gave to him was Ishmael, which means God hears. God not only saw Hagar, but he heard her too heard her cry, and knew of her suffering. And so in this small section of scripture, if we pause and pay attention, we discover something about God that Hagar herself discovered when all of this happened in real time, that God sees and hears us, and he knows each of us by name. Yes, in all this talk of names, rest assured that your name is known to God. Your parents may or may not have named you, You may or may not like your name and what it means, what it says about you. But whatever the story behind your name and your identity, God knows it, and he knows you. He claims you. How do I know that? Plenty of scripture backs me up, but let's focus on Isaiah 43. In this chapter, God is talking to his people, and he starts by saying, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel and your Savior. You are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. All right, guys, we're here at the end. I'm finally wrapping up. Thank you so much for hanging in there with me. I know this was a lot, but I really hope it's been as much fun for you as it's been for me. The main thing I hope I've imparted through today's episode is that the seemingly dry, boring, mundane parts of scripture, like genealogies and hard-to-pronounce names and historical facts, can actually yield such beautiful treasure if we're willing to dig for it. If we're willing to stop, slow down, pay attention, we can discover new things about God that we never would have known otherwise. In my own personal experience, I've found that while knowledge of God is not the same thing as knowing God, They do overlap by necessity. You can't fully love someone if you don't know them. And you can't know them if you don't take the time to learn about them. Today's episode, and really this whole podcast, is all about getting to know God. 
getting a grip on what he's wanting us to know about him so that we can fall deeper and deeper in love with him and choose to become a part of his genealogy, his lineage, his family. Because as we just heard in Isaiah, he's already so madly in love with us. Thanks again so much for listening. I hope today's episode has blessed you and encouraged you in your pursuit of Jesus through his word. See you next time here at The Connection Place.